I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. Starting today, you can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs. North Korea is, is the great sort of, perhaps the last great mystery country of the world. Clearly the EU officials responsible for the negotiations see those offers somewhat differently. I think he f probably feels that they're a proud country and they lost an empire and they don't want to be pushed about. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking with Sir Alan Duncan, UK Minister of State for Europe and the Americas. We're going to discuss US-UK relations, Brexit developments, and also a recent trip to Ukraine. Welcome, Sir Alan. It's great to have you here. Thank you. To open up with, I just want to ask a general question about, with the Trump administration, how has the US-UK special relationship changed? There's something about the relationship that is so special that in most respects it doesn't change, in that there is always a trust and a genuine working relationship which works whatever the political complexion or political character of the people on either side. So we've had Tony Blair working with, with George Bush. Um, we've had Margaret Thatcher working you know, with, with, of course, Reagan. Uh, and now we have Theresa May working with Donald Trump. And whatever the character of either, it works and it matters, and that's why it's special. So within this special relationship, there are always points of tension in any relationship. Uh, recently, um, there has been the case that Boeing brought against Bombardier, uh, the aircraft manufacturer, uh, accusing it of subsidies for its seat. Uh, series jets. And um, as a result of that action, uh, the U.S. is uh, imposing 220% tariffs um, on uh, the imports of, of that aircraft. Uh, Prime Minister May has spoke very strongly um, about this uh, issue and uh, seemed to imply in her public statement uh, that this could even jeopardize the relationship between the U.K. And, and Boeing. What, what is the UK's position on this issue? And, and frankly, it's a Canadian company. Why is the UK so concerned? Well, it's a Canadian company which owns a very, very important manufacturing plant in Northern Ireland. And the history of Northern Ireland with its tensions in the past matters enormously to the United Kingdom. We have peace there, uh, a hard-won peace. And jobs are the sort of elements that sustain that peace. So yes, we feel that Boeing has overflexed its muscles, uh, that the penalties on Bombardier in Northern Ireland are really inappropriate. But of course, this is tied up with, uh, if you like, a trade dispute uh, as much between uh, the United States and Canada as anything to do with us. And given the scale of Bombardier and everything compared with Boeing, I think this is unnecessary and unfortunate. It's, it's at its first phase. And I really hope that people can see sense and look at the, as it were, the, the sort of better good of the world that will follow from these jobs remaining in Northern Ireland and two companies of very, very different size being able to compete in the world market. And if the dispute continues to escalate, 
what are options that the British government would consider in, in um, making its concerns and its point of view uh, clear and also to press for an outcome that it would more prefer? Well, I think it's a bit early to say exactly what the next steps would be. So I don't really want to add anything to the point I've just made, but I very much hope that Boeing will appreciate that it has a very dominant position in the world. It has a pretty privileged uh, uh, relationship with the United States government, and to try and uh, you know disadvantage a relatively small competitor in a way that would cause deep, deep upset in Northern Ireland is something we'd, we'd rather see reversed. Let me move to another issue where there's been some difference between the U.S. and the U.K., and, and that uh, is on the uh, Iran deal. Uh, as you know, uh, October 15th, President Trump is, is due, to, uh, or due to certify or not uh, that Iran is in compliance uh, with this agreement. Uh, it's something that has to happen every 90 days under the legislation uh, here in the U.S. Um, he has recently called uh, at the U.N., characterized this, this deal in very derogatory terms, and has implied that uh, he uh, may abrogate the deal in some way or another. Uh, what, how does this view, how is this issue viewed by the U.K.? And to the extent there's a difference, why is there that difference of views? Look, I think we'd be very, very perturbed if the president were not to recertify. I mean, I think there's absolutely no doubt that Iran is in compliance, and therefore the agreement that's been reached should be allowed to continue, not just because they're in compliance, but because this is a deal which is to the advantage of the broader world. And if the president wants to, as it were, cancel the deal because he decides in his own mind that uh, he disapproves of Iran in general, I think really he ought to step back and realize that the world would be a more dangerous place if we don't have Iran brought closer into the family of nations through this deal. We have a big global problem with North Korea. Let's not add another one by having uh, an Iran which reverses the path it's on at the moment. So it would be much better to recertify and to continue the progress we're making with Iran and when it comes to nuclear problems, let's just focus on the one uh, which is obvious and uh, I think more dangerous at the moment, which is North Korea. Why do you think there's a difference of perception? I mean, President Trump argues that we need to take into account the entire range of actions of Iran um, in the region and that threatening the deal is necessary to put pressure on Iran to behave better, uh, discontinue things like recent missile tests. President Trump would argue without that pressure, Iran will continue to misbehave. What's wrong with that argument? I'm not sure that's entirely his view, but if it were, I think the analysis would be wrong in that uh, what this deal is doing is stopping it becoming a nuclear power. Uh, with the kind of threatening missile, missiles you're describing. So let's keep it on that path, recertify the deal, and keep the JCPOA in place, I think, for the future benefit of the region and beyond. Let's, let's move next to uh, North Korea, which you mentioned. What's your assessment of how President Trump has handled uh, the, the growing verbal uh, sparring with North Korea. Is this useful in order to 
be effective in backing down North Korea, or might this create more problems? The thing about North Korea is um, we are facing utterly unprovoked threats from this peculiar backward country, which are nonetheless threats of the utmost seriousness. We therefore have to proceed very firmly, but also cautiously. And that means you have to invoke the influence of China as the large proximate neighbor to try and put pressure on North Korea uh, to back off and back down. Uh, this is a very, very backward country. It's the last sort of ultra-Stalinist state um, which uses uh, torture, indiscriminate shootings, and all kinds of uh, absolutely ghastly methods to suppress and indeed impoverish its people. But it's as well not to escalate by provoking. I think it's better to go softly, softly, but <laughs> firmly, firmly, as it were, uh, to make sure that working with China uh, and other forces in the world, we can de-escalate in order to remove the threat to America, like Guam, uh, from uh, what's happening at the moment. How important do you think negotiations with the North Koreans are as part of as, as part of this process? Secretary of State Tillerson uh, disclosed when he was in Beijing that he has been that he has uh, more than one channel of discussions with the North Koreans uh, going on, and President Trump um, tweeted. Uh, to basically stand down, don't waste your time, we will do what needs to be done. What do you think of that approach and, and strategy? Look, North Korea is, is the great sort of, perhaps the last great mystery country of the world where we hardly really know what's going on inside that country. Uh, so the people who probably know best are the Chinese, so we have to work with them. Um, so, uh, you know, it's the old adage about sort of uh, talking softly but carrying a big stick. I think we have to work on many layers in many areas. And so I think um, both the Secretary of State and the President uh, have something to say in their different ways, which perhaps together uh, will make North Korea realize that they are embarking on a very, very stupid and ultimately entirely self-destructive course. What do you think, how effective do you think China can be in influencing the North Koreans? There's a range of, as you know, there's a range of views uh, from China could halt the progress of nuclear and missile technology in North Korea with a telephone call to actually their influence is, is less than, than one might assume. How does the UK government view what China is capable of and what China should be doing here? I think it's, it's a bit like um, many of the moral dilemmas you face when trying to put pressure on a country about whether the pressure you do put on them hurts the people more than it persuades the government. So you could cut off their oil, China could do that. But what do you do, make these poor people who have ended up eating grass even poorer, whilst the privileged continue to eat their beef? What do you do? So the key thing is to, I think, work with the Chinese to find a way for them to persuade the regime rather than just to put pressure on the country in general. Very good. Let me switch from uh, US-UK relations and talk about, and talk about Brexit. Um, 
there has been a great deal of, of debate and concern about the pace of the Brexit negotiations. Uh, according to the Article 50 timetable, uh, the, a deal needs to be reached by March 2019, or else, in theory, there's there's the edge of the edge of the cliff, um, and there would be a, a withdrawal of the UK. Uh, what do you see as the most important sticking points at this point? Well, I think the sticking points are clear, which is that the principles of the European Union, as the mainland sees it, are built on four uh, sort of inviolable freedoms. It's the free movement of goods, services, capital, and people. And uh, it's the free movement of people within the European Union, uh, which is a big sticking point, because the referendum result in the UK, which said that we're going to leave, was interpreted as being a statement a view by the British people that they wanted more control over their borders and indeed that they wanted to govern themselves and not be governed uh, by laws made in Brussels. Now the trouble is if you say look we're happy to have all the free trade but we just want a bit of control over the people then the EU say sorry that's a breach of one of our four freedoms so no deal and so getting over that obstacle that hurdle is uh, if you like the big one. So. That, in the end, will come down to a crunch point where the EU might, for political reasons, say, oi, no deal. But then they have to look over their shoulder at their companies and their people and their economic statistics and realize that if they go down that course, they'll end up hurting themselves as well as hurting us. So if they want to sell their BMWs and things like that to the UK market, they're really going to have to think rationally in economic terms and come to some kind of accommodation. I mean, already we, you know, in the past, have been different from the EU because we have a measure of control over our borders. Uh, we've kept the pound. We're not uh, members of the zone which has the euro as its currency. So why not let's find uh, some kind of terms and conditions which allow us to be outside the EU, but for all of us to prosper together through free trade. That's where we've got to get to, but we're not there yet. The EU has taken the position that before they're wanting to negotiate about the trade relationships between uh, Europe and the UK, they first want to deal with the issues of citizen rights, how EU citizens uh, will be treated within the UK after it leaves the EU, a financial se settlement, the so-called divorce payment, uh, as well as issues about the Irish border. Um, do you believe that it's possible to settle these issues first before addressing um, the issues of the trade relationship? Well, despite all the sort of awkwardness of the negotiations so far, I mean, these three points have been largely and constructively addressed by the British government. First of all, we've made a very, very comprehensive offer and suggestion that those who are EU citizens at the moment who are in the UK will be able to stay after Brexit. And of course, we see that as a reciprocal arrangement because we've got a lot of British people in Paris, uh, in France and in Spain and places like that. So in that sense, uh, citizens' protections have been offered on a reciprocal basis. So that should be a sort of tick in the box. Uh, likewise, on the divorce bill, as you call it, I mean, of course, the EU were trying to put an enormous figure on this, but in the speech the Prime Minister gave in Italy a couple of weeks ago, she basically said, look, you know, we acknowledge that we're going to pay something and if we're spending a couple of years 
in a transition before we go, we'll continue to pay our sub, we'll pay our subscription. So that sort of has been offered as well. Um, and on the question of the Irish border, well, frankly, it's in our interests uh, to keep a frictionless border. So, look, I mean, we, we, we basically made a, a good offer on citizens' rights, on the principle of uh, paying into the EU budget over the next couple of years. And in terms of the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, well, if that's what they're asking for, well, that's what we want. So um, that should marry up as well. So in basic terms, these three issues uh, are, are ones where a very, very serious and sensible constructive offer has been made. And we should now tick the box on all three and move on to a, a proper negotiation on other substantive issues. Clearly, the EU officials responsible for the negotiations see those offers somewhat differently. They talk about uh, the Florence speech by Prime Minister May as not unsticking the negotiations on these levels. And then Moody's followed with a, a downgrade of the UK credit rating because of concerns over, over Brexit. Does that put additional pressure on the UK government to revisit those offers and make them come to the table with, uh, with even more attractive um, proposals? No, I don't think either makes any difference at all. Uh, we've mapped out the uh, path we propose. We're publishing a lot of documents laying out our position. Uh, the UK Parliament uh, is determined to implement the uh, decision made by the referendum and so we will continue to say that we should get on to the substantive issues which remain and ultimately of course if the EU negotiators don't then you get into different politics uh, with us perhaps having to talk to other leaders within the 27 um, I mean the, the the negotiator is not the whole European Union he is the front man at the moment and being quite tough, but then so are we. Let me take us to a different part of the world and uh, to Ukraine. And I understand that recently you've been in Kiev. I'm curious from your visit, what is your assessment of the situation there at the moment? I think it's the sort of part of the world which is the litmus test of how the rules-based international order is going to be upheld or be pushed aside. Uh, the rules-based order basically says there are rules, and one of the main rules is you do not intrude into someone else's territory, and that is what's happening with the Russians in Ukraine. Uh, now, the Russians uh, have tried to call the Ukrainians bluff by saying, oh, well, let's have a sort of UN peacekeeping force or force of some sort because the Ukrainians had said, oi, you know, let's get the UN in here. Well, the Russians, of course, want to fossilize the, um, the status quo where the status quo is wrong, whereas the Ukrainians, in wanting the UN there, want to try and establish or reestablish what is right. So we have to appreciate that Russia is trying to extend its sphere of influence into Eastern Europe. And that's why I've not just been to Ukraine. I've been to, uh, you know, Belarus and, um, you know, Azerbaijan. And I've been to Uzbekistan and Poland. And, you know, it is all these countries 
who will be at risk if the Russians are allowed to um, sort of creep forward um, in a pretty nasty and underhand way um, into other people's territory. So we as the UK, even though we're leaving the EU, are going to make sure we still do our bit in the defense and security of Eastern Europe, as will NATO, the US, and I hope everybody else. So Ukraine is, if you like, the testing ground for whether we are going to stand up for what is right. And what actions is the UK government currently taking in that region? We've got a, an enhanced forward present in Estonia, 400 troops. Um, we are working with partners, uh, in particular NATO, and with countries in the area to reassure and to inform and share information and to make sure that in the UN and in other forums, uh, what Russia is trying to do is understood and uh, resisted. So um, that's why we've got sanctions. So when we leave the EU, by the way, we will have our own sanctions regime, which will allow us to continue with the sanctions, which at the moment we uh, apply because of UN sanctions or because of EU sanctions. One of the things you talked about was helping explain to the world what the Russian strategy is uh, and what, what they're up to. What do you see as Vladimir Putin's strategy toward East Central Europe? Well, I, I think he f probably feels that you know, they're a proud country and they lost an empire and they don't want to be pushed about. But it doesn't mean that they should be permitted to step into other people's sovereign territory. I mean, that's why we have sanctions. Um, and uh, our policy is to try to understand that, but to be tough. So it's engage, but beware. And I hope that that same uh, approach is shared by the United States and by our European partners so that Russia, which is also interfering, you know, in other countries' elections through cyber interference, for instance, uh, is you know, under no illusion about what the world feels about what they're trying to do. What has the interaction been like between the UK government and the United States government? Uh, President Trump has been pretty notable in, in a different tack toward Russia than we've followed previously. Uh, some view him as not willing to, uh, to confront uh, the realities of, uh, of Vladimir Putin's um, efforts in the world. Um, is the U.S. the kind of ally that you need in order to be effective in addressing the Russian threat? I think we do need the U.S. I mean, um, any serious issue in the world invariably needs uh, the United States. Um, so uh, I think probably not everything is as clear as many people would like it to be, but you know, there are lots of other things going on in the world at the moment. We've got North Korea and hurricanes and uh, things like that. But, you know, I am confident that certainly with his endorsement of NATO, which Vice President Pence made explicitly clear when he spoke at the Munich Security Conference um, last year, will be absolutely, um, or earlier this year, uh, will reassure people on that count. Does President Trump personally need to do more to um, send a signal of U.S. resolve that an attack on a NATO ally would be forcefully met? Many people are concerned that you know, Putin may 
test um, what appears to be sometimes a tepid expression of whether or not this administration really would, uh, would put American lives on the line in the Baltics, for example. Does, does Trump need to be stronger in order to send an effective message to Putin? I don't think that the um, basic tenets of the NATO charter uh, about what would happen if a NATO member were attacked in a way that violated that charter uh, is in any doubt. So I don't quite accept the premise of your question. Well, many were concerned when he went to the NATO summit that he didn't immediately and forcefully um, stand behind uh, Article 5. And one of the scenarios that people talk about is not an all-out military invasion, but something like we saw in the Crimea or Ukraine, where there are um, unmarked troops who infiltrate into the country and can quickly be, be withdrawn. Would it be useful for the president, who has, n who has said many different things about NATO, um, to reinforce his commitment for the United States uh, to respond strongly should there be any incursion into, the, into a NATO member's territory? I mean, I'm confident that the president is indeed a supporter of NATO. Um, the manner in which uh, Russia behaves uh, is complicated at the moment. You can look at uh, um, South Ossetia and Abkhazia as well as Ukraine uh, to see the complicated nature of some of their activities. Um, but uh, I'm confident that the, you know, the spirit of NATO remains fully intact. As we exit, what is one misperception that you believe that the American public has about the U UK at the moment that you would like to set right? I don't think the US has a misconception about the UK, but I would certainly want to reinforce um, uh, our approach to leaving the European Union in, in order to avoid any misconceptions. And the point I would make very, very clearly is that by leaving the European Union, we're simply leaving a, an organization of countries where uh, they, through a second parliament, try to tell us what to do. But in leaving, we're not leaving Europe, and we're not leaving the world stage. Indeed, if anything, we are going to reinforce our presence in the various organizations across the world, like the United Nations with the P5, uh, the G7, the G20. Uh, we, uh, through NATO, are the one Western country, European country, which spends 2% of our GDP on defense. We're the only one as well which spends 0.7% on international development. And the combination of the two makes an amazing contribution to conflict prevention and post-conflict recovery. And instead of shrinking or disappearing into a shell or a hole, we will be there, in Eastern Europe in particular, uh, making absolutely clear how we will remain involved in the defense and security of Eastern Europe, and we will continue through trade and everything else uh, to be a major player in the world, I hope, uh, on all issues where possible, working hand-in-hand -hand with the United States. Thank you, Sir Alan, for joining us to talk about uh, British foreign policy, Brexit, and the relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. I, I it was terrific to hear your views and get a sense of how these issues look like uh, from Britain.
And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Please note that the opinions you heard today are those of the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please take a moment to give us a review. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as on the Council's website at thechicagocouncil.org. Deep Dish and Global Affairs is produced by Evan Fazio. I'm Brian Hansen. We'll be back soon for another slice of Deep Dish.